We've talked a lot recently about errors, misdiagnosis and patient harm. And perhaps a condition that throws up a lot of concerns in this area is pulmonary embolism. A 2020 systematic review into diagnostic error covering 80,000 patients by Gunderson et al. suggests that PE is the second most common misdiagnosis behind malignancy. A second 2022 review by Kwok et al. suggests that in the ED, the misdiagnosis rate of PE may be as high as 27.5%, often being mistaken for ACS presentations or respiratory tract infections. It's clear then, this is a subject which merits revision and is something we should feel comfortable and confident to assess for. This month, we're looking at the pathophysiology of PEs, how we should be assessing for them and the management of patients that do have a PE so that we can help them perk up when they're not feeling very well. <laughs> oh, that is, oh, that is so, awful. <laughs> so, so it was that or pulmonary embolism. Ambulance General Broadcast and vehicles available to book on or come clear for an outstanding Category 1 emergency. Hello and welcome to General Broadcast. My name is Josh. And I'm Simon. And this month, uh, as you know, we're looking at PEs. Simon, it's a particularly big subject, isn't it? And one that I'm sure everybody's had some dealing with to one extent or another. Yeah, I don't think there's an emergency clinician out there that's not seen, queried or managed a patient with PE at some point. It's funny what you say in your introduction about it often being mistaken for ACS because uh, I've sent a patient to cath lab who ended up actually with a PE with all sorts of ECG changes. So yeah, it's definitely one of those trickier ones um, and it's very variable as we'll we'll talk through. Yeah, and, and it's one that I think is easy to think you can know everything you need to know about PE, but both of us as a result of doing work for this episode of learnt practice changing elements haven't we yeah um i i think there's a couple of things that will come out in this episode that might um shock a few people there's some other good pathways as well there's a lot of stuff that we can think about pre-hospitally from you know managing really poorly pe patients all the way down to those that we're not sure about and we want the diagnosis to be made about other pathways we can use to get that done apart from the ed so hopefully we'll um give something that someone can take away from this episode Great. Well, as always, we're going to start with the epidemiology. So let's get started. So venous thromboembolism is a term which encompasses DVT and PE. VT is the third most common cardiovascular disease after MI and stroke. And in epidemiological studies, annual incidence rates for PE range from 39 to 115 per 100,000 in the population. Yeah, and cross-sectional data shows that the incidence of VTE is almost eight times higher in individuals that are aged 80 or over uh, when compared to the fifth decade of life. Alongside this, longitudinal studies have revealed a rising tendency in annual PE incidence over time in England. Together with the substantial hospital-associated preventable an indirect cost of VTE, which is an estimated total of up to 8.5 billion in the European Union. This data demonstrates the importance of PE and DVT in the aging populations in Europe and other areas of the world. It is highly suggestive that VTE will increasingly pose a burden on healthcare systems worldwide in the years to come. So given this is a really common pathology that is often missed, Let's have a little chat about the pathophysiology. Josh, do you want to talk to us about that? Yeah, sure. So I think there are three main questions that we need to answer or it would be good to answer in pathophysiology. So that's what is a PE? How or why do the clots form? And then why do they end up in the lungs? So let's start with what's a PE? Pulmonary embolism, or PE, is a life-threatening condition resulting from what is normally a dislodged thrombus, though this can be fat, air or amniotic fluid, and it embolizes or travels through the venous system before becoming occluded in the pulmonary vasculature. Right heart failure and cardiac arrest may ensue if it's not aggressively treated. So why and how do the clots form? 
I'd imagine that most people listening, including yourself, I would hope, Simon, are quite happy with the basic principle of clotting uh, and the clotting cascade. Clotting is a reasonably important step when we injured to stop us from bleeding to death. Have I have I lost you yet, mate, or are you are you still with us? Clot and cascade, yeah, that's uh, something I learned for an exam once, and then uh, forgot. I think about ten minutes after I left. <laughs> no, I, I I meant that clotting stops us bleeding to death. But as long as you're still as long as long as that's not lost you, then uh, there's hope. <laughs> uh, so so why and how do clots form? Uh, internally and how do they go on to cause injury well a good place to start here is with Verkau's triad Rudolf Verkau was a physician in the 1800s and one of the first physicians to describe the concept of thrombosis at the cellular level now his triad postulates that to develop a vascular thrombosis you need three elements hypercoagulability of the blood alteration of blood flow in a vessel and vessel wall injury causing endothelial damage. So let's start with that last one. Normal healthy endothelium is a smooth non-thrombogenic surface and it's a natural anticoagulant and antiplatelet surface which is ideal because as important as it is not to bleed to death it's also reasonably useful if we aren't giving ourselves a stroke every five minutes. Uh, And fortunately Alex isn't here to respond to the double entendre there. The endothelium of blood vessels are equipped with a number of protective elements. It can secrete heparin-like molecules that inhibit clotting factors like prothrombin, and a substance called thrombomodulin that modulates thrombin away from being pro-coagulation to being anticoagulation. And this is happening all the time. People regularly have clinically insignificant thromboembolic events that the body's own processes lies or break down. So, Therefore, when the endothelium is damaged, inflamed, or otherwise impaired, then these anticoagulant safety measures can be impeded, tilting that normal homeostatic state of blood towards procoagulation. The second element in Virco's triad is an alteration in blood flow. In streamlined or laminar flow, blood is flowing normally and platelets don't have the opportunity to aggregate. However, if this flow is reduced or disrupted, then blood will begin to stagnate. Now, this happens far easier in the venous side of the system, as it's much lower pressure than the arterial side. Poorly flowing or stagnated blood increases the risk of platelet aggregation, particularly when combined with the loss or impediment of those anticoagulation effects we've just discussed. Examples of how we get this reduction in flow would be AF, valvular heart disease, or prolonged immobility, such as being bedridden after surgery. And finally, we need increased hypercoagulability of the blood. Now, the reasons for this are varied, and there's a spectrum of hypercoagulability. This could be genetic causes that affect our clotting cascade. It could be temporary, like the hypercoagulation state of pregnancy. Or it could be something from trauma, like the hypercoagulation state we see in patients with DIC. So finally then, why does it end up in the lungs? We're starting to build the picture up, and to answer that, we need to review the relationship between the heart and the lungs. The venous system drains into the right side of the heart via the vena cava, into the right atrium, and then into the right ventricle. And then blood leaves the heart via the pulmonary artery and is immediately perfused through the network of blood vessels in the lungs. So then, clots that form in the venous side of the system will take this path should they embolize and will become lodged in the pulmonary vascular structure. In fact, 50% of venous thromboembolic events will lodge in the lungs. We were talking about venous stasis a second ago. Often the area of the venous system most susceptible to this is the lower limbs and pelvic anatomy, as although it does have valves to prevent backflow, it relies a lot on the movement and activity of general day-to-day life to help maintain this laminar flow. It depends on a number of factors as to where this embolus will lodge, namely the size of the clot, but it can lodge anywhere in the lungs, including the branches of the pulmonary artery, and if it lodges here, it's known as a saddle embolus. Think massive LAD-type occlusion if it was in the heart. It takes out a huge amount of perfusion to large swathes of the lung, and can mean that our patient is particularly unwell. More blood clots tend to occur in the lower portions of the lungs than the upper, which I think is mainly due to the effect of gravity that encourage the clot to sink lower down in the lung, but they can occur in upper lobes of the lungs as well. 
Clots become lodged in the perfusing arteries of the lungs, blocking off flow to that area, and this creates dead space. Ventilation will still occur initially, but without perfusion, and so we develop a VQ mismatch. This results in a loss of usable lung volume and resultant hypoxia and hypercarbia. Quite how drastic or well-tolerated this is will depend on how much of the lung has been blocked off by the embolus. Now, finally, the blood that should have gone to that area of the lung will be redirected elsewhere and we get a relative increase in the pressure in the venous system and a back pressure towards the right side of the heart. So you may have heard about right ventricular strain patterns, RV dilation. Well, this is what's going on here. Backflow as a result of increased resistance in the pulmonary vasculature. Right. I think that's enough of me talking. Are there, are there any questions? Anything that we should uh, expand on further there, Simon? So I think you made that end point is, is, is probably the most important point that we uh, need to cover. That I think a lot of people believe that the reason that patients crash with PE is hypoxia. And whilst hypoxia is relevant and does cause a patient to deteriorate, it's actually that RV dilation and that backwards pressure that you really well described there that is actually the um, problematic cause that causes cardiac arrest, cardiogenic shock, and those hypotensive unwell PEs that we see when we think of those massive PEs that we'll come on to later. Yeah, exactly. And and I think I always used to think of this a bit like a myocardial infarction, but in the lungs. And although that is kind of similar to what it is, where there is an obstruction to blood flow in the lungs a bit like an MI, unlike an MI, this is on the venous side, not the arterial side. So the lungs themselves don't always infarct or don't always infarct straight away as they've got a dual blood supply. So the branches of vessels that come off the aorta perfuse lung tissue. So the resultant tissue itself may not infarct or certainly may not straight away. But the issue here is one with getting oxygen into the blood because of that VQ mismatch. And as you say, because of the back pressure impacting the right ventricle. I think one final point that we should make, Josh, you mentioned it earlier, is that actually a embolus from, uh, say, a DVT with a clot breaking off and moving into the pulmonary circulation, whilst being the most common cause, isn't the only type of embolic event that can occur. So could you just elaborate a little bit more on that? So other things apart from clots that you, you might cause the same symptoms? Yeah, definitely. So yeah, I've, I've spoken about that mostly as a thromboembolic event, haven't I? But like you say, there are, there are other things causing this. So it could be uh, a fat embolus. This is normally uh, uh, secondary to a surgical procedure or iatrogenic from a surgical procedure. You can have uh, an air embolus, and this is potentially for a pneumothorax or barrow trauma, as we discussed last month, funny enough, in our diving podcast. You can also get an amniotic fluid embolus. Now, uh, I didn't realize this, but this is actually a bit of a different entity. So when we talk about amniotic fluid embolus, this is more akin to an allergic reaction or a SERS type response. Uh, the issue is the immune response to that amniotic fluid entering the circulation. So rather than this kind of vaso-occlusive event that we're talking about here, that is that is more akin to a, I guess, anaphylaxis or, as I say, immune response. Um, so, so although it is an embolic event, it's slightly different to what we're talking about in this episode. And a uh, something else for um, us to be aware about. Um, you know, we will have patients that have been discharged post surgery, so obviously that's uh, likely a thromboembolic event, but. With our acute fractures, uh, you mentioned uh, a fat embolus, Josh, um, and I had a patient not too long ago who uh, decompensated rapidly on me with um, a shock and hypoxic type picture, and that turned out to be a fat embolus from the uh, quite significant femur fractures that they had that was the actual reason for their original presentation. So I think that's something that, although quite rare, um, it's probably worth keeping in the back pocket that if your patient suddenly deteriorates and you know, you're transporting them to hospital with a fracture. Think about other injuries. If, if you've had a, you know, a nasty fracture, is there other injuries that we're missing? But also, could it be a fat embolus that's broken off from that fracture? 
Yeah, that's a really interesting point. So I see loads of femur fractures at work. So um, definitely something to have in the back of my mind if I get a suddenly decompensating patient that um, doesn't quite fit the uh, the bleeding picture. I, I think for the rest of this, though, that we're going to be talking about thromboembolism is that's by far the most common cause of PE. So ordinarily here, we might start to talk about history and assessments, but we're going to flip on his head slightly. So let's talk about risk factors because quite a lot of the workup for a patient with, with PE or potential PE is risk stratifying them. So we'll talk about risk factors now, and then we'll talk about the kind of questions we might want to see in a history take uh, and the classic kind of PE history. So I think you set this up really nicely with your chat about Verco's triad. And that is what I think we need to keep in the back of our head uh, at all times when we kind of uh, go through these risk factors. So one more time, Verco's triad is uh, hypercoagulability, venous stasis, and endothelial injury. So keeping that in mind, let's go through some of the uh, independent risk factors for VTE and kind of link them to those components of Verco's triad. So as I mentioned just a minute ago, fracture of the lower limb. So rather than the fat embolus this time, we're going to think about the uh, thromboembolic event. So patients with fractures of the lower limb are high risk for VTE because firstly, they use the limb less. So they instantly lose that muscle contraction, which encourages venous blood flow in the lower limb. So we have our stasis. We also often immobilize lower limbs. Uh, so anything where a patient's in a boot or in a cast increases that, that risk. So they, they, um, become, uh, coagulopathic. So that is why you might find that some patients that have had a fracture are anticoagulated if they're in a high risk group when they're discharged from an emergency department or a minor injury unit. Patients that have had orthopedic procedures, particularly hip or knee replacements as well, interlink with that. Uh, for exactly the same reason. So around half of these patients uh, who've had a hip or a knee replacement will develop a VTE if they don't have prophylactic medication. And as you say, this is because of the significant immobility following this procedure, uh, plus significant venous damage and inflammation from the surgery. So our body's trying to heal and that makes us uh, hypercoagulopathic. Therefore, we're much more likely to form clots because that's what we want it to do. We want it to repair and repair is the, the clotting mechanism is part of that repair. So similar to that, a previous venous thromboembolic event uh, is also a risk factor. And that makes sense because if you've had the body state in order to make a clot before, you're more likely to clot again. So that chance is reduced if the patient's still anticoagulated. However, not everyone stays on coagulation permanently so you know have they had a PE or a DVT in the past so that's something good to ask in your medical history about clots if you are considering has my patient got a PE we need to be aware that often there is a cause of VTE so if you have a patient who has a spontaneous VTE part of the uh, follow-up uh, with SDEC teams and ED teams, or probably not done by myself in ED, but like, you know, acute medical teams, GPs, SDEC teams will be to find the cause for that VT if it's not obvious. And one of those causes, sadly, can be an underlying malignancy. So any malignancy, any cancer puts you at increased risk of a VTE, but the highest risk is in metastatic disease, particularly in pancreatic, hematological, lung, gastric, and brain malignancies. These carry the highest VTE risk. And this is essentially because cancers release a protein called tissue factor, which among other things activates the coagulation pathway, increasing your risk sevenfold for VTE. The risk is highest shortly after diagnosis, or in your example, Simon, pre-diagnosis, or after the initiation of treatment, and the risk diminishes when the cancer's in remission. So definitely one to bear in mind, and definitely something to consider if someone has cancer in their recent past medical history. So of note, chemotherapy is also noted as a moderate risk factor for VTE. I'm not sure if that's because these people will also have cancer or if chemotherapy on its own increases your VTE risk, but it's a, a specified uh, moderate risk factor for developing a VTE. 
Something else that people will probably be quite aware of is people on the oral contraceptive pill or oral estrogen. So why is that, Simon? So effectively, this is this could be really complicated, but keeping it relatively simple, um, estrogen-containing oral contraceptives increase the plasma concentrations of, of a variety of clotting factors. I won't go into all of them. Basically, several clotting factors and fibrinogen, which basically just makes you more likely to clot so that's why that is a is a risk factor so have a think about patients that are on uh, estrogen containing oral contraceptives and this is why it's actually worth exploring what type of contraception a patient is on if they're not on an estrogen containing or combined oral contraception and actually their uh, risk might be you know no higher than, than the normal population so i have seen people increase their worry of P as a diagnosis or or not use things like PERC, which we'll come on to later, because they've actually um, said other patients on oral contraception, but actually they're not on uh, a, a contraception device or, or tablet that contains estrogen. Uh, and some other moderate risk factors that come along are people with uh, recent blood transfusions, central lines, or indwelling IV catheters. And I think the reason for this is fairly obvious, isn't it? So you you are causing damage to the endothelium and localized inflammation, but you're also putting a foreign body in there that doesn't have that smooth uh, laminal laminar flow coating and is is an area where platelets can begin to aggregate and then embolize on. Yeah, and you know we can expand on this significantly further. So other conditions as well, like uh, diabetes, uh, hypertension, inflammatory bowel disease, autoimmune diseases, infections—they all add to that inflammatory process, which makes you more likely to clot. Uh, and that is why all of these can be, you know, compound our histories and can add to the risk factors for for um, PE. That that was going to be one of my questions, actually, because diabetes is one of those diseases, isn't it, that kind of increases your risk for everything. It's fairly, yeah, uh, it, you know, it, it's fairly into two other comorbidities, uh, particularly vascular type events when we think about MIs and stuff. So is that why it is you're, you're just generally more inflammatory if you're, because um, uh, obesity is another one, isn't it, that's related to just being generally inflammatory. So is that the main reason? Yeah, so um, obesity obviously causes inflammation, just like you said, generally. So, um, you know, you're more likely to have uh, clotting factors and various things going on. Uh, diabetes, similar, you're more likely to be uh, hypercoagulopathic because blood is more viscous because of high blood glucose levels. You know, you have endothelial damage because of the microvasculature that's being damaged as part of what we see as a normal disease process for diabetes myelitis. So, you know, it's just one of those things that compounds uh, and makes your, your chance of having a VTE significantly higher. And it kind of brings us on nicely to not, a, well, not a medical condition as such, but, but pregnancy. So pregnancy is a huge risk factor for, for VTE. And actually, it's, it's something I see not uncommonly in the emergency department of pregnant mm. patients coming in with sudden onset of shortness of breath with VTE as a risk factor. And that can present quite a, a clinical kind of conundrum because obviously we know that D-dimer, which is the test that we use a lot, is is useless in pregnant patients because it's going to be raised. And then that puts us in the realms of a CTPA or a, or, um, a VQ scan, both of which require exposure to radiation. That, that can be quite clinically challenging. Definitely a, a clinical challenge, but definitely something that we need to bear in mind. So all of the uh, pregnant women I've been to that are in cardiac arrest have been as a result of a thromboembolic event in a PE. And I think it's worth exploring the reason for that. So pregnant women are in a naturally hypercoagulable state, which the, the purpose of it, the evolutionary purpose is, is makes a lot of sense is to decrease the risk of uh, hemorrhage during childbirth. So the VTE risk uh, increases from about the fourth or fifth month of pregnancy with a 20-fold increase in the three months following delivery. So it's worth bearing in mind that your patient doesn't have to be actively pregnant to have an increased VTE risk. Really good point to highlight is that as pregnancy develops, the risk increases. So uh, second trimester is higher risk than first trimester and third trimester is higher risk than second trimester. And as you quite rightly said, even in the postpartum period for several months we are still in this state of increased risk for having a pe and 
Another thing on the the list is varicose veins, which we can imagine is as a result of stagnant blood uh, being a being the potential cause there. And so, I think the the final one that that people will be aware of that's probably worth discussing is immobility risk factors, and this can be quite difficult. So, a lot of the documents out there will recommend something like bed rest for over three days, but I've certainly well. I think I've seen PEs as a result of long haul flights or or journeys in the car. So how long is immobility? Because in my mind, it is probably proportional to how many of these other risk factors you have. So if you're a obese, pregnant, diabetic, then you probably don't need as long to be, you know, immobile to increase your VTE risk. But is, is that right? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, I'd go even further, to be honest. Like, so when I was a paramedic, uh, when I was a paramedic, I still am a paramedic, when I <laughs> originally trained, um, you know, everyone talked about like uh, long-haul flights, and I was convinced it must be something to do with being on an aeroplane, like a pressure change, but it's not. It's nothing to do with that. It's to do with the immobilization. And so, you know, we sit there, we don't move uh, as much as we would normally, and that is what actually increases our risk of getting DVT because we have that hypostasis. And then, as you quite rightly said, when we add other risk factors on top of that, the situation gets even worse. So it doesn't matter whether you're in a plane or a bus or a train or a car. If you sit there and don't move for a long time or you have bedridden, you know, you have fractures or you've had a spinal cord injury and you're bed-bound or a bed-bound patient in a nursing home, you know, who's elderly, all of these, these are the reasons why VT is higher risk because you have that stasis and you are not um, using your muscular pumps to move blood through your lower limb vena system. So we've talked about those risk factors and how we're going to risk stratify our patients. Now we need to move on to uh, the assessment and management of them. So probably what what's the best way to go about this, Simon? How are we going to assess and manage these patients? Because they can be they can present on quite a different spectrum of severity, can't they? Yeah. So we normally at this point talk about history and exams, you quite rightly say, but it's kind of difficult with PE because that spectrum of disease uh, of what a PE can cause symptoms wise is so variable. So I think it's actually easier if we kind of talk about uh, the spectrum of severity that a PE can cause, looking at the symptoms that's caused by that, and then work our way all the way from massive PE that's caused a cardiac arrest, all the way down to kind of nearly an asymptomatic patient with some maybe some unexplained mild dyspnea and no other real symptoms. So, and obviously the management varies along those as well. So I think it's a good way to focus our moving forward how we how we work these patients up. So PEs are categorised via the symptomatology and whether or not the patient is hemodynamically stable or not, not necessarily with regards to the size or the location of the clot. So we used to use terms like massive and submassive PE, and you would think that is with regards to how big the thing is that's sitting in your lungs. And that's not necessarily the case, uh, although larger physical sizes of clots that are higher up in the pulmonary vasculature are likely to cause more problems. So we now use the terms hemodynamically unstable and then mildly symptomatic or subsegmental PEs based on how they're presenting to us. So Simon, do you want to talk to us about hemodynamically unstable PEs or the old term being massive PEs? Yeah, so while it is an old term, um, if you go into hospital and you say massive PE, submassive PE, most people will still, um, well, actually nearly everyone will still exactly know what you're talking about. I still use it as a term, to be honest, but it's, I, I kind of like the new terms as well because I think hemodynamically unstable PE really sets the tone and it especially sets the tone for the treatment that we're going to give uh, later. So basically, a hemodynamically unstable or a massive PE is basically referring to as it says on the tin, a hemodynamically unstable patient who's presented with uh, syncope, with ongoing hypertension, obstructive shock type symptoms, and or cardiac arrest. So we know that PE patients can um, end up in cardiac arrest, and we know that people can collapse and go straight into cardiac arrest as soon as they develop a PE. 
And as I said earlier, I think when I was, you know, younger in my career, I thought that the reason for that was always hypoxemia. And hypoxemia is common and you get a ventilation perfusion mismatch. So supplemental oxygen should always be given as a treatment. However, the cause for the collapse is not actually related to the hypoxia in most cases. It's actually uh, second to the RV failure that we were talking about earlier. So contrary to popular belief, uh, hypoxia rarely kills in PE. It's the cardiovascular collapse and shock. If we think about the right ventricle, it has a crescent-shaped geometry. And unlike the uh, left ventricle, the free wall of the right ventricle is really thin and has quite a low volume-to-surface ratio. And this makes it quite poorly tolerant to acute elevations in afterload. So if we think about the fact that we have a clot, we have ventilation-perfusion mismatching, and we've therefore got... uh, effectively obstructed blood flow which is flowing back into our right ventricle our right ventricle is then going to dilate this is going to then affect contraction which is going to reduce uh, right ventricular outflow in turn that will reduce return back to the left side of the heart and therefore reduce cardiac output and that causes our hypertension and sometimes collapse so This is a really important point to take on board because how do we manage hypotensive patients in the pre-hospital environment? What would be one of the first things that we would go to? You know, it's something that we do all the time. Yeah, fluids, Fluids. absolutely. I am full of salty water. (laughs) And and up until, you know, maybe a year ago, I, I would have been exactly the same. However, fluids can actually be your worst enemy in these patients. I need to explain that a little bit more. So we call it the death spiral. We've just said that an acute PE causes increased right ventricular afterload. This increases the wall tension, which increases the oxygen demand on the right ventricle, which causes ischemia. This decreases contractility as well as the splinting from the uh, backflow of fluid that I was mentioned earlier. This decreases left ventricular preload, decreases cardiac output, Uh, and therefore we become hypertensive. If we give fluid, we effectively fill up the venous system more, which increases the um, splinting of the right ventricle. That further reduces contractility, and we have this spiral of going worse and worse and worse until actually we lose so much cardiac output that we can go into cardiogenic shock and then cardiac arrest. So actually... Giving too much fluid to to patients with PE who have, you know, a problem with their right ventricular function can actually worsen the problem. And this is in kind of direct contrast to when we encourage fluids in right ventricular MI. And I think that concept took me a while to get my head around that actually, you know, we want to give a bit more fluid in right ventricular MI because it makes sense because we want to increase Frank Starlin's mechanism. But if we've already got too much fluid in the right ventricle, it can actually worsen output and therefore, you know, make us more hypertensive and more shocked. Yeah, so so it's it's to do with why the right ventricle is failing, isn't it? So that in this instance, it's pumping against too much resistance. The afterload for the right ventricle is is too high, uh, and further increasing the preload to the right ventricle isn't going to be that beneficial or helpful. Absolutely, and I think actually explaining that on a podcast is 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 quite challenging to think about that. I think it's much better to see it. So how I ended up doing it was uh, there's a nice little diagram we'll put in the show notes. Um, but I also needed to sit there and think about uh, what was happening in the lung, in uh, you know the pulmonary circulation backflowing into the right ventricle, and all of its subsequent back effects actually helped me understand how this pathology results yeah i i'm gonna i'm gonna cause a difficult point of contention then and say that's fine if you're sure or you're heavily certain that this patient has a massive pe or hemodynamically unstable pe the issue and the really difficult part of the medicine involved is we've already said that lots of pe's are confused 
with a pneumonia or a chest sepsis. And so it can be really difficult, can't it, to understand whether your tachycardic hypotensive dyspneic patient is having a massive PE or has sepsis. Uh, Absolutely. And to make it even worse, you can actually get um, low central venous pressure PE. So actually, if you've got a collapsible IVC on ultrasound, because you've got a coexistence, a hypervolemic state, such as the trauma that can trigger the PE we talked about earlier, actually fluids can be beneficial or a small fluid channel can be beneficial. So yeah, it is really difficult to, um, to manage. So kind of my outlook on this clinically is um, try a small amount of fluids. You know, I'm not saying that 500 mils is going to put your patient into cardiac arrest, but if your patient is have a negative response to the fluids and is getting worse, as opposed to, you know, having some sort of fluid response, then we need to think about other treatment options. So that's when, you know, we want to be activating your critical care colleagues, which to be honest, these patients are going to be so poorly, you, you might want to consider that anyway, if it's not delaying too much treatment to hospital. Because actually in hospital, what we're going to do is manage this patient with, with um, vasoactive medications instead to try and, you know, um, improve uh, cardiac output. And we might even give uh, medications that decrease that right-sided heart pressure in order to um, try and readdress that, that balance issue. So you're talking there, I guess, about adrenaline, low-dose adrenaline. How is that helping this patient? Adrenaline is probably one of the best choices because it causes uh, pulmonary vasodilation, first of all, which obviously uh, is a a beneficial effect because it's going to reduce pulmonary circulation pressure. And then that obviously, as we said, we think about that backflow reduces the pressure on the right ventricle. It's going to increase the contractility of the right ventricle, which therefore improves the cardiac output. And obviously, that's going to then result in increased flow to the left side of the heart and uh, increasing cardiac output. A common terminal uh, pathway of PE is a brady asystolic arrest. So kind of the positive uh, chronotropic effects um, may well actually uh, head this off and prevent it. And we kind of want to aim for a map of around probably over 65 because that's going to help support the perfusion of the coronary arteries and therefore um, try and reduce that right ventricular ischemia and manage uh, the right ventricular function and just just help that um, kind of right ventricle to to do its job. That being said, they are still supportive measures and what we really need is some actual uh, definitive management. This is where we move on to the, 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 the kind of what we actually need to do to stop this process from happening, uh, which is thrombolysis. So just before we get there, let's just quickly summarise what you've said. So these patients clearly are going to have uh, oxygen, uh, high flow O2 through Hudson mask. We might want to try them on some fluids, but bear in mind that uh, it may not be helpful, may be harmful. Sometimes we just have to back a horse and commit to one of the actions that we want to give. These patients probably will need some inotropic support. So whether you in hospital or critical care teams could come and give some presses may help these patients. Uh, And now we're at the point where we're discussing and considering thrombolysis. So as we just talked about, thrombolysis is the treatment of choice. So uh, in hospital, we're probably going to go for 50 to 100 milligrams of alteplase. Traditionally, it was 100 milligrams. However, there's a significant amount of rising evidence that actually we don't need to give these massive doses of thrombolytics. And a lot of people are starting to do trials with half dose uh, or even quarter dose uh, of thrombolytics. So that's kind of something to watch this space is to see what we do. I currently use a half dose strategy just because I I've read the evidence and I'm relatively satisfied that it's just as effective without and obviously reduces the side effects of these because obviously you've you, we've had a half dose and the principle of thrombolysis holds true for these massive PE so anyone who's got a massive PE in hospital and um, we've obviously scanned them and they've got a confirmed PE uh, we're going to thrombolyze them however if the patient is too unstable to get through a scanner to do a CTPA or is in cardiac arrest, obviously we're not going to be putting patients in cardiac arrest for a CT scanner. I don't think our uh, radiographer colleagues are going to be happy with that. Josh, you can ask your wife as in next week. Um, I don't know, by the time this comes out, you'll be married, won't you? So yeah, we don't, we're not going to want to put a cardiac arrest patients through a scanner, obviously. That would be stupid. So we need to think about our clinical history and if we have a high suspicion of PE, we're going to obviously give adrenaline early as per standard ALS. 
And then we're going to consider giving intra-arrest thrombolytics because they have shown a significant survival benefit. The caveat to that, obviously, is once a thrombolytic's been given intra-arrest, we need to resuscitate the patient for probably a good 60 minutes before we decide that we're going to cease resuscitation to give it that chance to work and see if we can fix that thromboembolic reversible cause. So obviously, yeah, we do that in hospital, but I do know that HEMS teams uh, and critical care teams across the UK do carry uh, thrombolytics for cardiac arrest in PE. Josh, I don't know about your service, but do you want to talk maybe a bit about three pre-hospital thrombolysis for PE? Yeah, so so we don't carry it in our service. Uh, I think the reasons for that are pre-hospitally, the benefit I think is poorly evidenced and it, it can be argued either way. With my service being so rural, we feel that by the time we've got anywhere near a patient that would be eligible, the timelines wouldn't favour them. So currently we don't carry it. That may change, but I know some probably more metropolitan services do carry it and might be something that they would come and give to your PE patients intra-arrest, but the timelines have to be in favour of it. So clearly if they're arriving 30 minutes or 25 minutes into the arrest, that might not be appropriate. Yeah, so it's a good example of how things vary depending on geography and service delivery. I think if you're kind of in major cities where you have ECMO support as well, there's a lot of rising evidence that ECMO can be used as a bridging treatment to allow time for other procedures, such as your body to kind of break down the clot, thrombolysis to work. And there's also the rising thought process of uh, mechanical thrombectomy, which is effectively what we do with kind of like with uh, PPCI, where um, a interventional radiologist will manually remove a clot by going in with a, with a guide wire. Not necessarily a standard treatment all over the UK, but it is kind of becoming increasingly popular. So watch this space. Okay, so symptomatic but stable, or the old term being submassive PE. How would you define this, Simon? So the other one is the the, the massive PE or the hemodynamically unstable is quite clear. It's a patient that looks big sick that has uh, blood pressure impacted by the size of this PE. What about symptomatic and stable? So kind of your submassive PEs are going to be the ones where we are quite symptomatic, but we don't show any signs of right ventricular strain or right ventricular dilation. And also we may have symptoms, so we might be like dyspneic, we might have some chest pain, but we're not necessarily going to have uh, any of the unstable features like collapse, cardiac arrest, hypertension that we mentioned above. So these are our more common middle ground level PEs, and these kind of present with quite bad symptoms, but not necessarily shock. So tachycardic, hypoxic, reasonably hypoxic, tachypneic might fall into this group. You mentioned there about any signs of right ventricular strain. So most people will be familiar with right ventricular strain patterns on the ECG. So S1Q3, T3 is one everybody gets excited about, but it's very, very rare and almost certainly never appears. Uh, I think I've only seen it once. Um, right bundle branch block, I think, is slightly more common as a, in, in, in these kind of PEs with a, with a sign of right ventricular strain. So if you've got ECG changes conducive of a right ventricular strain pattern does that mean that they're a massive pe so yeah i'd be much more inclined to say that they're a massive PE because it's affecting the right ventricle and you're probably heading that way so yeah and the other things we want to look for is kind of right-sided chest leads or inferior chest lead t-wave inversions because obviously that's showing you know a right ventricular strain pattern right bundle branch as you quite rightly said but obviously the most common uh, ECG pattern, which isn't necessarily a sign of right ventricular strain, but we do see with quite a lot of PEs, is a sinus tachycardia. That's the most common ECG abnormality that we're going to detect. Cool. So these submassive PEs or symptomatic but stable PEs, what kind of treatment are they going to have? Clearly, they're relatively unwell, so we're probably still going to be taking them to hospital Uh treating symptoms as we as we see them and probably atmisting them but uh what treatment will they get in hospital are they going to have direct thrombolysis 
Uh, no is a short answer not in the uk so um we're going to obviously manage their you know oxygen if they've got an oxygen requirement we're going to give them that we're obviously going to admit them to hospital we don't thrombolize these in the uk but um the european society of uh, cardiology they are more inclined to say consider it whereas um you know nice in the uk uh are against thrombolizing of uh, submassive pe so our treatment of choice is to anticoagulate them but obviously that's not thrombolytics that would be with something like a noxaparin or like a, a doac so the, the the really simple way to think about that isn't it is thrombolysis is breaking down the clot whereas anticoagulant is preventing clot formation preventing it getting any bigger yes and allowing the body's natural kind of systems to lyse that or break that clot down okay so uh, those two quite clear um we're probably going to spot them aren't they they're going to have deranged observations and and we've talked that they're going to be getting intervention in in, in hospital possibly uh, medication and maybe a ctpa if there is time to to perform that but let's move on to the final category, which is mildly symptomatic or subsegmental PEs. So I think these are probably more common, but are the ones that might be more diagnostically uncertain. So do you want to talk about those for us and how we're going to decide whether or not someone might be at risk of one of these? So yeah, so these are our smaller PEs. So they they are occurring more in the distal vasculature in the venous circulation in the lung. So these patients are more likely to give us the classical symptoms of PE that we come to kind of think about. So that's dyspnea is really common. That pleuritic chest pain. Funnily enough, you don't tend to get pleuritic chest pain in the larger PEs. There's some kind of anecdotal evidence that you get more like an angina type chest pain in in your bigger PEs when when they're more central. But actually, these distal PEs, you're more likely to get your pleuritic chest pain, and that's purely because the the location of these clots sits quite close to the pleura and then obviously when they cause a clot which results in ischemia the the subsequent damage irritates the pleura and it's these patients where you might get a little bit of homoptosis again homoptosis isn't that common with big PEs think about your these are your ones with your pleuritic chest pain maybe a little bit of homoptosis shortness of breath that we would kind of classically associate with our our PE type symptoms often their tachycardia falls into that really awkward level doesn't it like sometimes they're just reaching 101 and then you'll sit them down and they'll maybe get down to 95 something like that uh yeah, very or unclear they, yeah or they, or they won't be tachycardic at all for the the really you know small ones and you know this is this is kind of a little bit of clinical judgment and actually you know if you ask some of my estet colleagues who, who deal with peas really regularly they actually kind of quite rightly point out that we clot and lies all the time as normal bodily functions. And therefore, actually, you could probably do a CTPA on five young, healthy people that are asymptomatic, and you'll probably find a PE, a small, tiny, insignificant PE, at the point you did that scan in a subsection of the population, just because it's part of normal physiology. And this is kind of where... We've gone from these cardiac arrest, really sick shock patients, all the way down to asymptomatic. So, and this is why it's really challenging diagnostically for picking up a PE. Mildly symptomatic, I guess. Yes. Yeah, because otherwise we would no have no. About, are they? Yeah, yeah, because we're going to have no gestalt at all, are we? If, uh, you know, if you've gone to, uh, to someone who's had a fall on injury and they've not short of breath and they haven't got any symptoms of PE, you're not, you're not going to query it, are you? And, and I'd argue it's, it's irrelevant. So. so, so these are those kind of patients where PE probably forms one of our three or four differentials after a history take and normal cardiorespiratory type exam, which is why we've not focused too much on what type of history take you do for this uh, for, for this condition, what kind of exam you need to do for this condition, because often it, it forms part of a differential from our general symptom workup, doesn't it? So what kind of things, if, 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 PE, this mildly symptomatic PE, is part of our differential list. 
what kind of stuff might we want to do to help risk stratify where this patient needs to go? And people will probably be thinking of Wells score and Perks score in this. And they're basically the same, right? Perks newer, so we should just do Perk. Is that is that right? No, actually, I'm really pleased that Perk has now been included in the most up-to-date NICE guideline for, for PE because it allows us to do a clinical rule-out which I think we were always lacking before. Because if, if before PERC, uh, if you queried a PE within your differential list, you kind of had to do some investigation. Whereas now PERC exists, you can get away with that and not do it because you can clinically say that the risk is extremely low. So let, let's explain what these are for people that may not know. So they're both clinical risk stratification tools, aren't they? So talk to me about how you might use one. So uh, I've presented to you, I've got a little bit of shortness of breath. I've maybe got a little bit of chest discomfort on one side, maybe. Uh, that's maybe a little bit worse when I take a breath in. I'm not quite sure. How would you use these tools? And these are our classic patients. So, you know, you've kind of taken a history um, and you've done your examination and you can't really find an obvious cause for their shortness of breath. And this is the big red flag warning that I would give anyone always think about in the shorter breath patient. Before you diagnose anxiety, always think about, could this be a PE? Because it's there's there's been major cases even recently where um you know it's been misdiagnosed so always think about PE before anxiety so what we're going to do if we haven't necessarily got a, a diagnosis and we're thinking about PE is we're going to risk stratify it so we're going to use the wells score so the wells PE score basically puts you into a category of high risk or low risk and that is a, a a point cutoff where if you score four or less, you are low risk. And if you score four or more, you are high risk. So if you are high risk, because that's the easiest one to cover, you need to have a CTPA. So a CTPA, because we haven't explained what it is, is a, is a uh, CT pulmonary angiogram. So that's basically looking at your pulmonary vasculature for a clot. So if you fall into a high risk category in the Wells score, you need a CTPA. If you are low risk, this is when you can then go down two avenues. You can either clinically rule this out with a negative PERC score, or if you cannot rule it out with a negative PERC score, you need to do a D-dimer. Let's talk about briefly what the Wells criteria are. Sorry, I'm on set. Yeah. Am I being loud? No, no, um, there's a spider in the bedroom. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, <laughs> spider in the bedroom. <laughs> I just need to go and remove a spider. Uh, and then if you want to start talking about Wells, that's fine. So the Wells criteria was designed to give us a estimated pre-test probability to help us risk stratify patients for PE. Uh, and then it allows us to choose what further tests we need after that. So the things we need to consider when we're thinking about the Wells PE score is, are there clinical signs and symptoms of a DVT? Is there a heart rate over 100? Has there been immobilization of at least three days or surgery in the previous four weeks? A previous objectively diagnosed PE or DVT, the presence of hemoptysis, which is coughing up blood, or a malignancy, treatment for malignancy within the last six months, or palliative care for a malignancy. The final component is a little bit arduous, and that is, is PE the number one diagnosis or equally likely? So therefore, I would suggest if you have a diagnosis that is more likely than PE, such as if you had a patient with cough and a low-grade fever who had some crackles in the right side of their chest, you would say, well, actually, a chest infection is more likely the cause of this patient's symptoms rather than a PE. Therefore, it's it's you would answer that question, no. But we also have to think about, you know, would we be applying this test in the first place if it wasn't a a lead differential so is there something that we think is more likely to be causing this symptoms 
So PE has to be the number one diagnosis or is equally likely as our other diagnosis in order for us to score that as a positive yes. We then get, you know, a range of scoring points. And I find the easiest way to score this is just to open up the website MDCalc and just follow the, uh, the the questions on there. And then that gives us uh, a they, number of they do an They do an app now, Grandad. <laughs> Actually, I do have that downloaded on my phone. <laughs> yeah, so you Just can use the website. Just go to your browser, WHTTP. I'm sure it's probably on all the EPCRs across the UK as well, but, um, you know, it's as outdated folk in hospital. So then we have basically a score of four, which is PE unlikely, and there's an instance of 3% PE, uh, a low-risk group, or higher than four, which is PE likely. So we've already said that if the outcome of this is over four, we're going to go straight to a CTPA. So that patient needs to go to hospital and have uh, a scan. But what happens if the score is low and we're dealing with a low pretest probability of PE? This is when we can bring in our PERC score. So Josh, do you want to explain what the PERC score is? Yeah, hang on. Just let me open up my uh, MD Calc webpage. Oh, we've got apps now, Grandad. <laughs> uh, sure. So the PERC score is the pulmonary embolism rule-out criteria. And the PERC can be applied to patients where the diagnosis of PE is uh, still considered, but it's deemed a low risk. Again, the PERC score asks you a number of yes or no criteria, where it allocates a score of one to any individual yes answer. And the perk is really, really simple that if you answer yes to any of the questions, then the person is perk positive and a pulmonary embolism cannot be ruled out. However, if you answer no to all of the questions with a low pretest probability from your Wells score, then you can clinically exclude a clinically significant pulmonary embolism. So it's not the same as saying the person doesn't have a PE, but it's saying that within a relative tolerance of acceptance, so I think it's a less than 2% chance, the patient doesn't have a clinically significant PE. And uh, it is also now written, as I said earlier, in the new NICE guidelines. So it is a nationally approved guideline. So obviously we can apply that into our practice. So... Let's say we've got a patient who we can perk rule out. So we're probably going to discharge them on scene with worsening advice or consider a different another diagnosis. That is relatively straightforward. However, if we can't rule out using perk, but they're still low risk on wells, where are we going to go from there? So what what would you what you traditionally would you do with that patient, Josh? Take them to hospital. Might be something you consider. Yeah. Okay. So we're going to go to hospital and uh, most people, that would be the emergency department. Uh, so you transport the patient to ED. Is there anywhere else that you might consider referring this patient either under their own steam, if they're obviously stable, we've got to the point where they're stable enough, um, or you yeah, can transport so you, themselves. So you, you mentioned the SDEC. Now, is that the same as ambulatory care? Because that's definitely what it was called when I was on the road. Yeah, so... SCEC National. Yeah, so um, ambulatory emergency care, or AEC, is what a lot of places still call it. But the national agenda is kind of changing all of the names to SDEC, which is same-day emergency care, but it's effectively the same place. And nearly every acute trust in the country that has a co-located emergency department will have now an SDEC because it is a NHS England driver to have same-day emergency care. Right, but if we're a paramedic working for the ambulance service, Simon, unless we've got an approved referral pathway into SDEC, surely we can't refer into them. And Josh has always knows how to push my buttons. <laughs> well, there is actually a pathway. It is a national pathway. So NHS England have made it clear in all their guidance documents that uh, SDEC referrals can come from a variety of places, including the ambulance and paramedics. So ambulance services nationally can refer to SDEC. And nearly every SDEC in the country, because PE rollout and PE workup was one of the first pathways to be designed through SDEC services, they will most likely have 
have access. So what I would do is next time you're in your acute hospital and you've got a little bit of time, if that ever happens, is try and find out how to access your SDEC services. And yes, you absolutely can refer direct to them. And I will put the link in the references at the end of the, you know, the accompanying uh, show notes for this that shows that NHS England approves of paramedic referral to SDEC services. It's probably worth mentioning as well that that doesn't necessarily mean we need to take them there. So if they've got somebody who's a responsible adult, uh, right, you, you know, GPs refer into SDEC all the time. So if there's somebody that can get these patients into SDEC who can be responsible and support their welfare in case they deteriorate. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, and in fact, that's actually one of the criteria is that they are ambulatory because, you know, you want a patient that can come in and leave. That's the whole point. The whole point of SDEC is this stopgap between primary uh, and urgent care and admission into hospital and to try and reduce admissions into acute uh, acute hospitals so yeah i think that's absolutely fine if you've got a hemodynamically stable patient with say some dis- unexplained dyspnea give your local SDEC a call uh say you know have a chat for to practitioner to practitioner or practitioner to um medical reg or whoever mans the local SDEC might be a consultant might be a reg might be a practitioner and just say that you have a patient with a low risk suspected pe um, could you refer them through their PE pathway? Um, and then normally what happens is the patient is called in. They will have some bloods, including a D-dimer with their low-risk well score. If the D-dimer is negative, they will clinically uh, use the, that to exclude a PE and will work the patient up for whatever else and discharge and manage them. If they find that it's positive, they will then refer that patient for a CTPA. And that will either be done same day if they have slots or it will be done uh, within 24 hours normally or, you know, if it's over a weekend, maybe like a Monday. And they will anticoagulate the patient prophylactically in the interim. So, Simon, you've mentioned uh, D-dimer a couple of times and it's probably something that people are quite aware of as being a test for PE or certainly a test that we run if we're querying PE because there is a difference. So it's probably worth discussing briefly what D-dimer is. So what is a D-dimer? And I know that there's some difficulties with running a D-dimer because it isn't a particularly specific test for PE, is it? Quite correct. So D-dimer effectively, when we form a clot uh, from fibrin, Plasmin is produced to break down that clot into smaller pieces so it can be removed, which is what we call lysis. The fragments of the broken clot are called fibrin degradation products. One of those is the D-dimer. Therefore, if your D-dimer is measured in the body, this is evidence that there is a breaking down of clots. So theoretically, if you have a raised D-dimer, you are breaking down a clot somewhere. However, it's not, as you said, very specific. And basically any process which breaks down fibrin, which include pregnancy, inflammation, trauma, infection, cancer, surgery, all those risk factors for clot that we said earlier can also mimic and cause a raised D-dimer. So that's why you need a strong pretest probability and appropriate application of the tests. We, we do occasionally ignore raised D-dimers where there's completely no reason for it being requested in the first place. You also can't use a D-dimer to exclude VTE in pregnancy because of exactly what we said earlier. You know, you it's most likely going to be raised, so so it has no place to rule out VTE in pregnant patients. So it's effectively got a high negative predictive value. So if it's normal, we can use it with a low risk well score to exclude PE, but we cannot use it to if it's positive. It's it's kind of clinically non non-significant and um, i suppose the only other thing that's recently come out is that we can age adjust that as well so you know the cutoff point used to be 0.5 whereas now actually as over the age of 50 as you know the patient gets older we can kind of age adjust that so we would accept a slightly higher d-dimer in other other age groups finally it's probably just worth discussing as we always do, some of the other differential diagnoses, which I guess PE is a diagnosis of exclusion is how we would characterize that. So if we can't comfortably either exclude it or come up with a far more reasonable and likely differential diagnosis, then then we would need to go somewhere um, to have some tests to exclude it. 
but common differential diagnoses that coincide with PE would be pleurisy, a pneumothorax, potentially someone having an ACS event, infection such as pneumonia, uh, aortic dissection, uh, and then asthma and COPD exacerbations. Although we need to be really careful in these groups of patients who uh, obviously a cause for their increase in shortness of breath can definitely be PE and they can present to us concomitantly uh, and exacerbate their asthma or COPD. Okay, so let's summarise. We've discussed the pathophysiology of PE. We've talked about how we typically need the three elements of Verkel's triad, vessel wall injury, hypercoagulability and altered blood flow, to result in clot formation. We've talked about how although hypoxia is an element of PEs, of greater concern is the RV dysfunction that they can result in. We've discussed the factors for PE and how we need to ensure that this is screened for in our history takes. And then finally, we've talked about the three main types of PE severity. The life-threatening massive or hemodynamically unstable PEs that require urgent transfer to hospital and emergency thrombolysis. Submassive PEs who are sick but without that obvious right ventricular dysfunction. And then subsegmental PEs. For those in that latter group, we've talked about how we can work patients up using the Wells PE and PERC tools to risk stratify them. And for those patients who are low risk and stable, but not PERC negative, we've talked about how we can facilitate transfer to either an emergency department or an SDEC for a D-dimer and ongoing follow-up. Remember, if they're stable, they might be appropriate to go in with a responsible person. It doesn't necessarily mean that we need to take them in. They should go by the most appropriate resource, which is better for us and the service, and most importantly, better for patients. But that's it for this month. As always, there's going to be references and information available on our website, generalbroadcast.org.uk, and you can access the full back catalogue of our other episodes right there as well. But do you know where else you can get it? In this app you're listening to us on right now. And if you follow us and subscribe to us, you can stay up to date with the latest episodes. And we know not everyone listening right now is a subscriber. So if that's you, make sure you hit that subscribe and follow button and you can stay up to date with our latest episodes and great new free CPD that we're putting out for you. But thanks for listening this month and we'll catch you next time.